Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In recent years, thousands have been turning to crowdfunding to pay for medical expenses. But what does that say about the state of our healthcare system in the U.S. when families need to depend on the kindness of strangers instead of their insurance plans? Coming up, we'll look at crowdfunding trends and hear from a national nonprofit about the kinds of policy changes needed to help Americans. There are more than two dozen hospitals in Connecticut. How are they delivering quality care to their communities in a time of increasing costs? The CEOs of two Connecticut hospitals will be joining us for that discussion. That's just ahead. We'll also talk with a faculty member from Quinnipiac University who's training the next generation of hospital managers. How will op hospitals operate in the future? Will care shift to more outpatient facilities, leaving hospitals to help the sickest? We'll find out more just ahead. But first, nationwide, more and more hospitals are consolidating. Do these mergers impact the kinds of care available? For some perspective on the way hospitals are trying to stay viable, joining us now by phone, Jay Hancock, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Jay, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Nice to be here. Our listeners are familiar with uh, consolidations of hospitals in Connecticut over the last few years. Um, But when we look at uh, the states nationwide, is this a continuing trend? And what are the reasons behind it, Jay? Yeah, it's 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 going on everywhere, and uh, the reasons go back to what was going on before the Affordable Care Act uh, came in. There's a lot of pressure on hospitals to control costs. Healthcare costs are still uh, rising faster than inflation, and there's been a lot of talk about controlling those costs. And there's also been a lot of uh, financial distress among rural hospitals uh, who were probably the first in line to suffer from cost control. Um, and so you've, what all that adds up to is uh, a drive to consolidate, to merge. Everybody's seeking safety in numbers. The dominant uh, urban hospitals uh, like Yale and Hartford HealthCare are, have gotten even bigger, and the rural hospitals are sort of trying to join each other or draw, join those larger urban systems to, um, you know, to sort of get consolidation, to get power, to get market power. The hospitals argue that it gives them greater efficiency, but it also gives them greater bargaining power in negotiating with insurance companies, uh, which is helping drive up prices. So all this is adding up to see these mergers, not just between the hospitals, but also with the doctors. They're acquiring doctor practices, which are you know, a big part of the picture. Let's talk uh, first about um, the consolidations, and then we'll get more into the so-called doctor deals, as you call them in your story, Jay. Uh, when we hear about these consolidations, we hear about these out-of-state managers that are coming in. Um, you mentioned uh, rural hospitals are having trouble uh, staying viable. Here in Connecticut, there's Sharon Hospital on the western side of the state. They were bought by uh, HealthQuest, which I believe is based in New York. So when that happens, um, can you talk about the governance and who's making the decisions that, you know, really impact uh, local communities? 
The governance uh, shifts out of state, uh, but that is not unusual. It de- it depends on on what the merger looks like. Usually, there's there's sort of a, a, a shadow governance that still that remains in the in the community. You know, advisory board that's in the community, but the uh, but the the financial calls are really being made. Um, by the parent company, the fact that it's out of state is is doesn't make a huge amount of difference. And in the long run, uh, what really matters are the financial arrangements being uh, set up in these rural communities to pay for the care that's there. They are under a challenge, uh, no matter who their their owners are, no matter who their umbrella organizations are. If if you've got um, Declining utilization. The the I believe it was Sharon. That's the one where there's a question of whether uh, birthing operations will be available there. If there's if there are declining births in uh, in that community, um, to the extent that it can't support uh, an ob- obstetrical operation, then it's hard. It's going to be hard to do that no matter who the owner is. Uh, but it is a concern of you know to the communities when the it's a trade-off. They're getting the financial stability, you know, at least the promised financial stability that comes with a larger organization, but they're also losing local control. There's concern when there are consolidations that this, in effect, creates monopolies. How are hospitals dealing with that concern? Uh, you mentioned uh, there's also this practice of buying up doctors and doctor practices, which um, can maybe streamline care for communities, but that also lessens competition. Yeah, the hospitals. I think it would be fair to say are not dealing with it. They're they're taking full advantage of um, sort of a lack of of uh, enforcement by the federal antitrust people, and um, they are amassing very significant market power. What does market power mean? It means that when it comes time, every year, every few years, to negotiate. With the insurance companies locally who represent the employers who are paying for uh, most of this care, let's not forget it's it's the uh, it's the employers, it's the big corporations, the small employers where we work who offer health insurance who ultimately pay for this. Um, and when their agents negotiate with the hospitals, the hospitals are in a situation to demand very large rate increases um, that is helping push up the price of care you've got in Connecticut you've got between them Hartford Health and Yale uh, control about half of the inpatient business in the whole state and uh, within their within their respective metropolitan areas they control even more they're essentially a a must-have system in any network and so they're kind of in a position to uh, to name their own price and this comes through in rates, and it's going to be a continuing problem. The one, uh, the one hope for these consolidations was going to be cost control. You may have heard of reader listeners may have heard of accountable care organizations, which was when you bring all these uh, healthcare providers together and uh, give them incentives to deliver better, higher quality more efficient care the idea was that the incentives for efficient care and and better quality would come in at the same time as the consolidations but that's actually not happening the 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 uh, incentives the pressures to deliver better care are lagging behind while the consolidation goes on and the costs keep going up
You mentioned uh, regulatory authorities, whether it's the federal government or specific states that are looking at when hospitals are consolidating. But when uh, hospitals are reaching out to purchase doctor practices, why is that not um, getting any oversight, Jay? Uh, that's getting even less oversight than the the combination between the hospitals themselves. And the reason is that under federal r- rules, um, a, a deal, a merger has to be, in any industry, has to be uh, of a certain size to trigger federal review. Um, and when hospitals are acquiring doctor practices, one practice, two practices, even half a dozen practices, at a time, it doesn't trigger the disclosure requirement. That is, at, at, at a certain size, merger uh, participants have to notify the Federal Trade Commission that yes, we're we're doing this deal. You might you know we're, we need to we need to inform you, and then that triggers a, a, a surveillance process by from Washington. That doesn't go on with doctor practices. They're sort of. Uh, uh, bought up um, on the quiet, and uh, that uh, also delivers uh, significant negotiating power. If you uh, control most of the doctors in town who are delivering your care, you're in a position uh, of uh, great power at the bargaining table when you're negotiating with the people who uh, pay for this stuff. Jay Hancock is senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. His recent story is how below-the-radar mergers fuel health care monopolies. Jay, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we're looking at uh, the hospital industry, also uh, the future of hospitals in our communities. Coming up right after the break, we're going to hear from two hospital executives here in Connecticut about the costs of doing business. And is there a better model to provide care for communities where it's not too costly for hospitals or their patients? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about how hospitals are managing to deliver care at a time when costs to patients are rising. What changes must hospitals undergo to remain sustainable? Is there a need for more outpatient and innovative healthcare models instead of relying on this traditional hospital setting? To help us understand the way hospitals are managed locally here in Connecticut, joining our conversation are two CEOs of hospitals in Connecticut. First in studio, Dr. John Rodas, president of St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. And then joining us by phone is Vincent Capice, CEO and president of Middlesex Hospital in Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, Vincent, welcome to where we live. 
Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm curious if you could both uh, start off by explaining how you have seen uh, the hospital industry change over recent years and some of the factors. So I'll start with you, John. Well, there's been tremendous change in the state since I first came here 30-plus years ago. When I first got here, there were 31 or so acute care hospitals. Uh, Every town had one, two, or three, actually, hospitals. And they were all separate, not-for-profit, small to large, and uh, there was no amalgamation, no consolidation, no major affiliations. And that has changed tremendously now. You have three or four systems. There's really just a handful, literally, of independent hospitals, Middlesex being one, uh, that are are still left. And when we were earlier, we were talking a little bit about why hospitals uh, need to consolidate. Uh, you mentioned these 31 standalone uh, hospitals in Connecticut more than 30 years ago. But uh, is, is it the point where there's uh, too many beds that, that, that hospitals need to think about ways to, to restructure, John? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a little of that as well. Uh, there, we probably were overbedded. Um, and uh, I think Jay mentioned it earlier. I think these small hospitals, particularly in the more rural areas, it's just very, very hard to sustain yourself. Um, hospitals are capital-intensive organizations, and you just don't have the scale uh, in order to keep your costs down. And consolidation does a lot in amalgamations to allow you to keep your costs lower. Uh, Vincent, again, uh, you're CEO and president of Middlesex Hospital, and you're one of the few independent hospitals left in Connecticut? Yes. And so tell us about uh, that decision. Well, we've we've studied the trend uh, of consolidation in healthcare, and you know, consolidation has occurred in many industries. If you look at banking, if you look at the airline industry, um, you know, consolidation is a way that businesses and, and hospitals are very much a business. Um, it's a w- the way businesses respond to defend themselves, uh, to protect their revenue stream, also to look for ways to uh, achieve economies and reduce expenses. So. It's a, it's a business defense mechanism. We've looked at that as an option, um, and the logical choices for us would be to join uh, the Hartford Healthcare System or the Yale New Haven Healthcare System. And uh, we've studied those um, options. Uh, we've actually looked at potentially joining systems beyond um, hospital systems that are in our state. And our board um, takes their fiduciary responsibility to the communities we serve very seriously. And so we, we tried to look objectively at what the benefits of being part of a large system would be. And we did this 10 years ago, and we continue to reevaluate it. Um, and every time we've looked at it, we, we've come to the conclusion that while there certainly are benefits to being part of um, a larger entity, that the, the, the co- there are costs as well. Um, and one of the costs is that, and you, you spoke about this in your earlier segment, that decisions are are made uh, once you join a, a bigger system. Decisions aren't made in the local community anymore. Much of the decision-making, the, the, the major decisions, are, are made at a, at a corporate headquarters that isn't necessarily in the community. And our board feels as though uh, that's a big um, compromise that would have to be made uh, if we were to join a big system. And as long as we can continue to meet our financial goals and our strategic goals and our clinical goals, that there isn't a burning platform to to join a larger system. And, you know, they've also said we're not independent for the sake of being independent. And if our current model, for some reason, doesn't work anymore at some point, then certainly we're going to look at other ways of doing business to ensure that healthcare is delivered to our community. 
But is it challenging for you uh, when you have uh, big systems like Hartford HealthCare or Yale New Haven where uh, they have uh, bigger networks and then also maybe more uh, money to then attract uh, uh, talented doctors and, and specialists that will then get patients in the door, Vincent? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, there's, there's a lot of competition, um, not only from those two large health systems, but I think all hospitals are finding that our competitors are not necessarily just the hospital down the road. Uh, it's also physicians who are developing, um, you know, non-hospital entities like ambulatory surgery centers uh, and other entrepreneurs like CVS and uh, Walmart that are developing minute clinics and other um, other ways of serving the community that um, used to be served solely by hospitals. Uh, so yes, it's been it's been very. Uh, a very competitive environment, and uh, it's very difficult um, from a strategic perspective to make sure you're making the right decisions to um, to, to serve the community the best and to keep the, the organization uh, vibrant and viable. In studio with me, uh, Vincent Capice was just on the phone, CEO and president of Middlesex Hospital in Middletown. Uh, Vincent, please stay with us. But I wanted to turn back to John Rodas, who's president of St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford. We were talking about mergers, and St. Francis, uh, I believe, merged with the Trinity Health of New England uh, system back in 2015. So why did you uh, need to do that um, and explain who else is in the system? Well, it's, it's a great question, Lucy, and, and whether it's a need or, uh, as, as Vince said, we went through the same uh, analysis and staying independent. We're the third largest hospital in the state. Uh, we were doing well financially. Uh, but, again, you have both uh, debt obligations, you have pension liability obligations, and then, and then finally you have capital needs. Um, you know, we need to invest in our, in our hospitals and our systems and provide care to patients with, of optimal, uh, with optimal resources. And Access to the capital, I would say, is probably one of the biggest reasons people join a larger system. Trinity Health is a, is a 90-plus hospital, $18 billion entity with 130,000 employees across the country in 22 different different states. So for us, they were faith-based, so that was important to us to maintain that. But as a AA-rated company, they have access to capital at a lower interest rate than we would have and, uh, and an easier access to it, frankly. So that allows us to invest uh, back into our community, back into the hospital. So uh, for us, I, I think it was a, it was a, a great decision. And then, of course, St. Mary's and Waterbury has joined our Trinity Health of New England. We already Mercy Medical Center up in Springfield, so we actually crossed two states, and a Johnson Memorial uh, in Stafford Springs with their Enfield campus um, as well. So and Mount Sinai Rehab Hospital that we had merged with 26 years ago. So it's um, you know for us, it's been very positive. This is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about the hospital industry with two hospital executives, Dr. John Rodas, president of St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford, also Vincent Capice, CEO and president of Middlesex Hospital in Middletown. Many of us uh, rely on um, good health care institutions in our communities. Is, are there any concerns that you have as a listener when you hear about hospital consolidations or what you've noticed in your community? You can join us as well on Facebook and Twitter. Um, if I could ask you, John, um, one thing we had spoken with uh, Jay Hancock from Kaiser Health News is the concern that these uh, consolidations uh, lead to monopolies and then the costs actually rise for patients. Can you talk about that? I think that's a legitimate concern uh, when, you, when you look across the country. Uh, you know, the, the promise, of course, of lower costs and, and better care um, have not always been delivered everywhere. I'd like to think uh, with Trinity Health and, and Trinity Health in New England in particular, we've 
we've stayed commit, committed to our communities, both to our communities we serve, but also to the, the value proposition. So we're actually a lower cost provider than our competitor, and frankly, on any objective measure on quality or patient safety or patient experience, uh, we trump them. So if you think of value as you know the best outcome for the lowest cost, I think despite the fact we're part of this large system, we've still been able to deliver on that equation. So what guarantees do you offer your patients when they walk in the door that you're operating with uh, their best interests in mind versus the bottom line? Yeah, I think, you know, we're, again, as a not-for-profit entity, whether it's, it's Middlesex Hospital or our own, uh, any profits that are made go back into the community. So it's not, we're, not, we're not beholden to shareholders. Um, and I think that hasn't changed, frankly, whether we're part of Trinity or just old, plain old St. Francis. Uh, those dollars still go back into the community we serve. So we're committed to that. I mean, patients have to, and I think they do appreciate that. Uh, Vincent Capice, again, you're one of the few independent hospitals in the state of Connecticut. You also have an alliance where you're working with other hospitals in the system, but not necessarily in a, a merged sense. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's a, a unique um, uh, consortium of hospitals that have come together uh, that are relatively low cost, uh, relatively high quality. Uh, and we're working to try to provide an alternative to um, the bigger systems that, that exist in the state. And um, our focus is on trying to, to bring, um, to disrupt the insurance market because that's where people, uh, employers and individuals access the healthcare system and, and the, the premiums that they pay are, are what pay for healthcare. And the premiums are impacted by the costs that insurance companies have when they're having to pay doctors and hospitals. And so what we've been trying to do is get insurance companies to create products that will focus on providing patients and, and employers an economic incentive to utilize hospitals and physician groups that are relatively low cost and relatively high quality. Um, back to the, to, to the value equation that Dr. Rodas spoke about. Um, and many of the products that exist today um, kind of shield the patient from really understanding you know, what, who is lower cost and um, who is higher cost. Uh, and if you, you know, remove that barrier, remove that veil, and expose the patient to and give them a choice of um, choosing lower cost and, and exposing them to that um, and giving the choice to, to certainly choose a higher cost organization if they feel that's more appropriate, but they bear a higher cost if they make that choice. Um, we believe that it, this is one way of lowering costs and incenting um, physicians, uh, well, incenting um, patients to utilize lower cost organizations. And it, it's also a way of getting hospitals and doctors and patients aligned uh, in their incentives. Uh, we heard earlier the concern that uh, when hospital systems um, buy up doctors or, or doctor practices, that too um, can impact uh, monopolies. I'm just curious, uh, Vincent, how uh, what practices Middlesex Hospital um, uh, encourages and in terms of um, how many uh, doctor practices you've been able to, uh, I guess, uh, make sure they're aligned with what you're doing at the hospital? So about 20 years ago, we recognized the need to make sure that we had primary care, a solid base of primary care doctors in our community. So we created our own primary care group that's owned by the Middlesex Health System, uh, and that has grown over time, primarily because um, 
many primary care doctors have found it difficult to make ends meet with the economic forces that are working against them, uh, frankly, uh, in the healthcare system that we have today. And so they've sought employment by hospitals to be shielded from some of those economic forces. And so because of that, we have um, grown our uh, physician entity over time. So we employ primary care docs. We've also seen that a number of specialty groups in our community have sought to be employed as well. So we haven't actually been out actively trying to acquire physicians. Uh, We've been having a dialogue with the physicians on our medical staff and in our community and basically offering employment as an alternative. Um, If if doctors want to stay independent, we're working with them to try to help them be independent, but we want to also make sure that we're aligned uh, and that we're working together uh, to focus on quality, to focus on efficiency, um, so that we can deliver on that promise of you know, high quality and lower cost to our patients in our community. Uh, John, what about uh, St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center? How are you attracting doctors and also retaining the staff that you have? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a balancing act, to be honest with you. As a, we're a little bit different as a tertiary care hospital. We're, we at St. Francis are more heavily weighted in some of the specialty areas where, uh, so if I have trauma surgeons or heart surgeons or neonatologists or I'm a high-risk OB doc myself, uh, for those high-end specialists, uh, you know, that's the, those are the ones we employ. In our Waterbury and Springfield markets, on the other hand, much more like Middlesex, uh, the primary care physicians uh, have joined into the health system. But we're very, very dependent on our private physicians. It's a, it's a very symbiotic relationship. The, you know, their health and well-being and our health and well-being are intim- intimately linked. Uh, so we're, in, at least in the Hartford market, very dependent on, on them, uh, private physicians. Uh, one question we were curious about is what's to prevent hospitals uh, when they have these uh, doctor networks within their hospital system, what's to prevent them from encouraging physicians to refer a patient to services he or she might not need? Well, you'd like to think physicians still do the right thing by their patients. Uh, I think we're mo- still very motivated by just doing the right thing. Uh, we have ethical obligations to our patients. Um, so I don't think we drive decisions basically on that. I think the the drive, if you will, is where the services get provided, not that unnecessary procedures are being done, but they may be done at point place A versus place B because you, you want to maintain network integrity. And because you have so many hospitals within the Trinity Health Network, how does that impact the way your system is able to no- negotiate with insurers? Well, I think, you know, I, I think the comment made earlier by Jay was that, you know, some systems have really have leveraged that position uh, to uh, really, you can in some ways hold insurance companies hostage. And we've seen some ugly examples of that actually in Connecticut over the years. I, I don't really think we've tried to do that, to be honest with you. I think we still negotiate as separate hospitals uh, with the insurance companies and try to leverage our our market share and our, our national standing to more share knowledge, information, best practices. And again, we can keep our costs now because we're buying, we might be buying 20 CAT scan machines uh, across the country versus one CAT scan machine that I might buy, on, buy otherwise. Uh, One of the questions we also wanted to answer, and I wanted to hear from both of you about when we think about the traditional hospital setting and because uh, costs are rising, um, you know, when you think about the future of the hospital uh, system, uh, where do you see uh, delivery of care really being focused? Is it more in the outpatient uh, clinics? And um, is that where you're hoping to invest? I'll start with you, John, and then we'll get to Vincent. 
Yeah, I think uh, there's no doubt the, as far as when you look at where capital is spent, I think the priority is try to maintain your own facilities, but also to get more care closer to the consumers. Uh, patients want to get care close to home whenever they can. Uh, we're, we're expanding, for example, for cancer. We've just ex- opened up an office in Glastonbury uh, to the east of the river, so to speak, uh, for patients to not have to come into Hartford for chemotherapy, for example, or see a, see a provider or a breast surgeon or an oncologist. So I, I think that's probably been more of the push over the last decade or so. You see a lot more of these now, you know, expansion into the secondary markets to get closer to, to the patient, to deliver care closer to home. Uh, I, th- I would say that trend is probably going to continue. And Vincent? Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, care with the proliferation of new technologies, um, the delivery of care uh, is being provided more and more on an outpatient basis and more and more in the home. Uh, and so, you know, Middlesex actually was one of the first hospitals in the country, we believe, to have developed, uh, you know, long before I got here in the early 70s, um, satellite facilities that provide 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week emergency services, as well as a whole host of diagnostic services. We have a facility in Marlboro and a facility on the shoreline in Westbrook that are almost like um, extensions of the main campus of the hospital and have pretty much everything except for inpatient beds. Uh, and that's a model that more and more hospitals um, you know, over the last five or 10 years have begun to adopt because it provides a more convenient access to care for patients. Um, it's less intimidating. Most patients would prefer if they just need to have a radiology test or some sort of outpatient procedure. They'd much prefer to access care at a facility like that as opposed to come to a main campus of a hospital, which can be uh, more difficult to navigate and more um, intimidating, perhaps. And so, yeah, I, I, I would agree with John that we're going to see continue to see a migration to the outpatient setting um, because patients prefer that and also because it's less expensive to the extent you can move care to an outpatient setting, uh, it's, it's less expensive. John? Yeah, and I would even, I, I, I couldn't agree more, and I would add that the, the disruptor, you know, coming down the road, just like, you know, we talked about the banking industry, you know, you know when I first came here, I had CBT was my bank, and then it's Fleet, and now it's Bank of America. But frankly, now my bank has become my phone. And I, and I think that's the technology that's going to be both disruptive and actually, I think, good for patients. Uh, you know, my kids are, are millennials, and, you know, I can't imagine them dialing a rotary phone, making an appointment weeks down the road, waiting in a waiting room for half an hour to see a provider. I, I don't think they're going to do that. And frankly, I don't think they need to do that anymore. So now you've a lot of it through telemedicine. Uh, I, I think that's going to be the big disruptor. So you won't, won't ever have to leave your home. Uh, and and the other part of the mint said we'll deliver more care to the home as well directly. Uh, you mentioned telemedicine. That was my next question. So, um, are there um, you know are there is there ability from St. Francis uh, Medical Center where you're doing that, or you hope to be doing that within the next few years? Uh, both actually. Yeah, have, there's availability now through our, through the carriers already provide that service, and through Trinity Health nationally are actually uh, about to roll out a national. Uh, partnership uh, vis-a-vis telehealth. This is where we live. Uh, Today we're focusing on hospital management and the driving factors leading to consolidations and other decisions. We have two hospital executives joining our conversation today. In studio with me, Dr. John Rodas, president of St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford, and Vincent Capice, CEO and president of Middlesex Hospital in Middletown. We wanted to know more about how future hospital leaders are being trained to keep up with changes in delivering care to communities. So joining our conversation now is Angela Maddy, professor 
professor in the Department of Healthcare Management and Organizational Leadership at Quinnipiac University. Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. So uh, tell us about uh, what Quinnipiac is, is doing to train uh, these future hospital administrators, given all of the um, factors we've talked about, about how um, you know, the industry can, continues to change based on patient need. Well, we have a very dedicated and passionate team at Quinnipiac and some wonderful facilities and programs to do such a thing. We have an MBA program that takes into account the unique domain, language, and uh, challenges related to healthcare. So our MBA students take a specific track with uh, domain-specific courses in healthcare finance and healthcare systems. Uh, we also require our business students to, um, to not only learn about the business of healthcare, but they're also required to take a patient safety healthcare quality course, realizing, um, understanding both sides of the coin, the business that we're in, but also the need to provide good quality patient care that both John and Vincent were talking about. Um, we have a beautiful facility that encourages interdisciplinary education at the uh, new medical school at Netter. Our, our students are trained alongside the healthcare lawyers, the MDs, the PTs, the OTs, realizing that we're going into an environment that is increasingly complex and that it requires interdisciplinary solutions, understanding, and respect. Um, and teamwork to uh, address those solutions. We also um, work a lot with the community and uh, have a lot of active learning projects, which is a win um, both for the students who get a chance to do some real work on the outside, but it also makes a contribution to organizations. The American College of Healthcare Executives, we consider them a partner with us in training our future healthcare leaders. They have contributed a significant amount of energy, time, effort to uh, mentoring, to appearing for guest lectures, things like that. Angela, I was curious, when you look at the uh, student makeup of of people that are interested in hospital administration, um, are they mostly MBA students or are you seeing medical students wanting to make that transition? Yeah, and, and that's actually a very good point. Um, we have a wide spectrum of people. We we had a insurgence, and I think it had to do with the debate around Obamacare of young people becoming very passionate about the field and looking to make a difference. We just recently graduated our first MD, MBA, and if you look at the data, we will have more and more physicians like John running hospitals and looking for business skills. We also have a lot of mid-career practitioners who want to move from the bedside to the boardroom, who want to learn the business of healthcare. We have a lot of practicing docs who are in an environment where they really need to hone and develop their business skills because healthcare is a business. You know, there's the, the you know the belief that uh, the healthcare industry is lucrative for some, but doesn't um, ensure that uh, all uh, people are able to access quality healthcare. How do how do you address uh, that a narrative in this country and that issue that needs to be solved? And does that deter your students from even wanting to be in this industry? Uh, the, the short answer is no, and that that's a great point because. A lot of our students are realizing that our generation did not get it right. You know, you look at every 
metric in terms of how much we spend on health care and what our mortality rates are and our infant mortality rates are. So we're spending a lot. We're not getting very good outcomes. And we're not incentivizing what we need to incentivize. So we, we do a lot of work on social determinants of health. We know a big predictor of your health status is your zip code. And we do a lot of work having our students think out of the box for innovative solutions. You know, we have a perverse incentive uh, system in healthcare. We pay for sick care, but we don't pay for preventive measures and basic public health information. So we try to um, encourage our students to think creatively, to not accept um, current trends or current challenges, and to begin to look outside the traditional methods of delivering care, the hospital, and how do we incentivize and make improvements in social determinants of health, which we know has those things have big payoffs. I want to turn back to the hospital executives. Uh, on the phone with us is Vincent Capi, CEO and president of Middlesex Hospital. Uh, Vincent, as you hear uh, Angela talk about how they're training this next generation of, of administrators, you know, what are some uh, challenges that you see that you, know, you and your staff are facing today that will need to be addressed by this next generation? Well, I think there's going to be a need for all types of people uh, in the healthcare industry, uh, clinicians, uh, whether it's nurses, techs, doctors, um, and administrators, and getting people who have um, a broad background, uh, the ability to think outside the box. I think for a long time in our industry, frankly, we've kind of done things the way they've always been done. And I think we're being challenged to do things differently, partly because we can't afford as a country to continue do, doing business the way we've been doing it. Um, I think part of that has been the result of our culture, which is kind of encourage people to eat what they want, drink what they want, do what they want, and we'll figure out the pill or the the operation to make you better. And what we're learning is that's a very expensive way of going about things, uh, whereas many other countries, and so as a result, we've have a, we have a very sophisticated um, system of health care that focuses very much on specialized care. Um, you know, so we can do open heart surgery, we can do all sorts of sorts of transplants and things of that nature. Whereas other countries have uh, invested significantly more in primary care and keeping people healthy. Um, and we haven't done that. And we're trying to play catch up right now. And so we need people who can think broadly about how, how best to deliver care, again, with the focus on quality and cost. Uh, John Rodas with St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Yeah, I think there are several key points Angela made and, and Vince uh, agreed with. I, I think we've uh, first on the the health disparities issue, that's a really, really important thing for the, the country, but particularly for us here in Hartford. Uh, you know, we have the Curtis D. Robinson Center for Health Equity. I think it's really the first com committed department center for, uh, to address the health disparities in our marketplace, in our community. We, we go into barbershops to do prostate cancer screening. We're going to churches. Uh, we offer free mammography, free cancer uh, screening, uh, cervical cancer screening to our community, and sub subsidized by philanthropy and also through grants. Uh, so we, we, again, never have abandoned this community, and that's a big issue for us um, and, and an important one. I think as far as the leadership goes, interestingly, uh, Angela mentioned the American College of Healthcare Executives and the MBA program, and, you know, I, I guess I'm a perpetual student because the last five years I've gotten both my MBA and become a fellow of the American College um, Trinity is led by Dr. Brickfield Fillon nationally, 
who is really one of those top 50 healthcare leaders in this country. And our, our regional health ministry is led by a, a physician, Dr. Reginald Eady, who's an emergency department physician himself. And, and St. Francis is led by, by me. And I, I'd like to think that the combination of that leaders, leaders who are both providers, but also have that business training and background, uh, makes them uh, well positioned uh, for today and for the future for our for our patients. Uh, before we head to break, I just wanted to ask both of you about um, you know obviously the Affordable Care Act is still I think being argued in courts about uh, you know the uh, mandate to uh, require people uh, to get insurance. That's something that the Trump administration um, is fighting. Uh, but in terms of what you're seeing, uh, how that the policy debates in Washington and even uh, you know state mandates, uh, how that can impact uh, the work that you're doing in your communities. Vincent, I'll start with you. Well, I think certainly having people uh, have insurance is, is a good thing. And so we very much have supported uh, the expansion of, uh, of uh, insurance and uh, making sure that everybody, uh, as, as many people as possible, are insured. Uh, and so that's something we've been very supportive, supportive of. And um, certainly that affects our ability to be able to continue to deliver care. You know, when you have sizable populations of of patients with without insurance, um, it is a it is a difficult thing to to address because someone has to to pay. You know, as as everybody has said here, you know, the, the hospital business the hospital is a business. Um, we kind of have we're, we're kind of schizophrenic, and we have a face that that is very much a business, and we also have a face that's very much a a public charity. Um, a chair, you know, we're, we're all charitable organizations to the extent we're not for profit, and so um, you know. Addressing the issue of coverage and making sure that we have, um, you know, that, that we're providing access to care uh, and making sure that people are getting uh, uh, the right uh, preventative measures to make sure that they stay healthy is, is very important. John, can you answer that question under, under a minute? Yes, I, I think the uh, I, I think having insurance is certainly very important, and I, I, I support uh, everyone having having both health insurance, but also, as Vince said, access to care is perhaps even more important. And, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, big box stores out in affluent suburbs, uh, but you need to be able to reach the patients uh, who are in many ways in greatest needs. We have food deserts. We have, you know, social determinants of health where people just don't even have the education about what they need to do. And I think more focus on wellness and prevention uh, is also essential going forward. I want to thank Angela Maddy for joining us. She's, again, professor in the Department of Healthcare Management um, at Quinnipiac University. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How many of you have donated to a GoFundMe or other crowdfunding platform to help someone you know cover medical expenses? According to GoFundMe, one-third of the money raised through its platform goes towards medical-related expenses. We're going to talk about that after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In recent years, thousands have been turning to crowdfunding to pay for medical expenses. But what does that say about the state of our healthcare system in the U.S. when uh, families and others need to depend on the kindness of strangers instead of their insurance plans? Joining us uh, for more on that is Tom Keis, Director of Public Affairs at the United States of Care. Tom, welcome to the show. Lucy, thanks for having us on. Briefly, uh, tell us what is the United States of Care and what are you seeing in terms of crowdfunding trends? 
Yeah, United States of Care, we are a, a nonprofit organization founded um, just this year, and our objective is to find ways to make healthcare more affordable and more accessible for all Americans. Uh, and we're doing that by trying to find creative new solutions at the state level, because we know that at the federal level right now, there's, there's just too much gridlock, and we're not going to see the progress and the change that we need as fast as we're going to need it. So we're looking to do it at the states. So uh, because of that gridlock you mentioned in Washington, how can states step up uh, to deal with this, uh, this problem of, of health care disparities and the fact that people don't even have enough money to pay for their expenses even despite having insurance? Yeah, I mean, as you talked about at the top of the, uh, top of the segment here, um, the GoFundMe and the, the crowdfunding is really it's, it's a symptom. When you, when you have a third of the campaigns on the GoFundMe page dedicated to health care costs and and you look at the numbers that over the past eight years, they've raised $5 billion to pay for, for our friends and our neighbors and, and our family's health care on, on an online website. It's, it's a sign that we can do better um, as a nation and as policymakers to, to help fill that gap. But it's also there's, a, there's an encouraging part of that and that it shows that people want to help each other and that at the end of the day, we're all in this together and we want to make sure that people are getting the care that they need to stay healthy. What states are you working with specifically, and, and what are some possible solutions, Tom? Yeah, so right now, we're, we've talked to over 20 states in, in the few months that we, in the past six months that we've been on, on board. Um, we've yet to determine what states we're going to go active in, but there are definitely a number of ideas, some of which are going on there in Connecticut even, that we think are going to be helpful. We're, we're looking at drug price transparency as an issue to bring down costs. We're looking at ideas like Medicaid buy-in to allow people to buy in and have greater access to care. We're looking at ideas um, in terms of stabilizing the market because we know that's the, the foundation of being able to make sure that people are getting the care that they need. So we're trying to find areas where we can establish, establish some real, real progress as fast as we can. We have two hospital execs with us in studio with me is Dr. John Rodas from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford. What role do hospitals play in this conversation, uh, John, as we mentioned, uh, when we see so many people having to rely on crowdfunding to pay their bills? Well, first, I'd agree with Tom that access to affordable health care, uh, you know, just should be a basic right of, of patients in this great country of ours. Uh, and unfortunately, it's not. Uh, hospitals uh, end up being, you know, safety nets uh, for for consumers uh, and patients who can't um, can't don't have access to care often, and they come in sometimes sicker uh, later uh, in the disease process, which ends up just driving costs up. The the challenge for hospitals is how do we how do we provide that cost? Neither Medicare nor Medicaid really cover the cost of care that we deliver. And you know, historically, we've passed those costs, if you will, on to the insurance companies, who are kind of getting tired of of making up that difference. And that's the challenge is, is going forward. How do you how do you balance that? But there's no doubt it's uh, we are the safety nets for for those consumers. And I think that the fact that people are whether you're employed or not, there's no doubt uh, patients are having a greater responsibility, financial responsibility for their care. It's, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, our listeners, uh, when they see reports of hospital surpluses uh, from the Office of Healthcare a- Access data, you know, how, how are hospitals using that surplus? Um, is there a way to uh, funnel that back into some charity care that you may be able to offer? Yeah, I, well, I think we, you know, and I think I, I, I know it does the same. We provide tons of charity care to our communities. Uh, and I mentioned some already. And 
Uh, that's an important. It's really literally in the tens of millions of dollars for St. Francis care we provide to our community in, in free or subsidized care. Mm. Uh, Vincent, uh, your what you see your role in your hospital's role in this uh, again helping uh, people who are underinsured uh, pay for expenses. Sure, and um, I think uh, as Dr. Rodas pointed out, the hospitals are the safety net for. Uh, the communities that we serve. And whenever someone has a health care issue, um, if they can't get care anywhere else, they end up in the hospital um, kind of as a, a means of, uh, of last resort. And we're going to take care of anybody that shows up at the hospital, regardless of their ability to pay. Um, and we have many, many different programs. Uh, and there are, there are a number of state laws that also limit the amount that we can bill someone who doesn't have insurance. Um, but I, I would venture to say that most of the people who don't have insurance and don't have the means to pay are not, not being forced to pay, at least in the state of Connecticut. I know there's, we've heard a lot of horror stories about people with bills of hundreds of thousands of dollars that don't have insurance um, in other states. But I don't think that's happening uh, in Connecticut if people are truly indigent and, and can't pay uh, because we have mechanisms to protect them. Uh, and I would venture to say that you know every hospital in the state has a charity care program, has a, has a free bed program where there's monies that have been set aside through donations to help pay for uh, people's care. And, and we write off a, a lot of uh, bills for people that just can't afford to pay it. Uh, but the bottom line is if people come here and need care, and this applies to every hospital, just not Middlesex, they're, they're getting the care that they need, and that's the most important thing. The problem is, as Dr. Rodas pointed out, many people end up in the hospital because they couldn't access you know, the primary care or the other types of care that, that would be a lot less expensive to provide, uh, and, and their problems um, accelerate because they're not getting the care they need in an outpatient setting, and they end up in the hospital emergency room with a much more exacerbated condition than otherwise would be the case, and, and that's just a, a spiral that, uh, you know, we're trying to prevent from happening. We're going to have to leave it there. Thanks to Vincent Capis, CEO and President of Middlesex Hospital in Middletown. Also, Dr. John Rodas, President of St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford, and Tom Kais uh, with United States of Care. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown here on WMPR, Connecticut Public Radio.